Oh, we have coming up a homework due on Friday and a quiz that's due by Sunday. So minutes are relatively quiet because I can't think of anything else you guys have for the following week. So you might actually get a break for a week. From <laughs> Which is nice after we had, you know, exam and article and homework all do it once. You get it again at the end of the semester, but eventually you end up at the deadline there and you, you know, nobody sleeps at the end of the semester, right? You're up for seven days from now. I'm not trying to do that to you, but most, of, most people tend to do it to themselves and wait to the last minute. I know how it works. Okay, so we do have a homework and a quiz. That is up there and should be available in the homework. The exams are done for those who were here, and then we need to, or I need to talk to the others to work out times to get that set up. The grades are up there. They were better than the last one, reasonably. It went up about about four points actually over the last one. The last one was not good. They did go up about four points. So, But hard to tell when we're missing a third of the class. So, We'll see for sure after the end. So I'm not making any determinations on anything else at this, at this point until, after, until afterwards. So, But I'll give those back as soon as I can. Grades are up. You can see them. But I'll give them back as soon as I can get everybody else completed so I don't have to make up too many different exam versions once they're out. So. Okay, questions there? No? All right, picture of the day for the day. Been doing a lot of nebulae. We've got a wizard nebula today. Everybody sees the wizard, jumps out at you, right? Not at me either, but if you see it, that's show me. The only thing I could make out, and I'm not sure if this is what it's meant to be, is that you almost get a little part, and it doesn't show very well in here, but you almost get like a little pointed hat up here and maybe a. Maybe there's some wizard out there. Maybe that's supposed to be a hand stretching. I don't know. I'm stretching. I'm trying to use my imagination and stretch it. I, I, don't, I don't see it, but somebody with more imagination than me must have, must have named this one. But it relates back to what we've just talked about, of the things we've just talked about. We've had, and of course, we do lose something in the projection up here when you're taking that picture and making it this big. You do lose a little bit in that. So if you look at it on the screen yourself on a smaller one, maybe you see that. Because I sort of can make out a wizard hat, maybe, maybe. But it's a stretch. But what you have is, again, an emission nebula here in the red. We've talked about that. You have an emission nebula here and a reflection nebula here in the blue. And emission, of course, is hydrogen. So we've just gone through all that, so you should know all of these, all of these parts. So that's the hydrogen. This is the dust. We're seeing the reflection of the dust from these very couple very hot stars. And you've got an open cluster of stars here. So there's a cluster of stars in here that has been forming from this nebula. And there's a lot of these brighter blue stars here are the ones that are actually heating up the nebula and making it glow. When those stars are gone, this nebula, neb typical nebula, lasts a very short time. A couple million years. I know, I know. A couple million years. For astronomical, that's nothing. Sun lives 10 billion. But when those stars are gone, when those brightest and hottest stars are gone, the nebula disappears because it takes those very hot stars to excite the nebula. The sun couldn't do it. You could put a thousand stars just like the sun in the center of this nebula and it wouldn't glow. You need the real hot stars. You can just take one of those super hot stars can emit enough ultraviolet radiation to cause the entire nebula to glow, whereas a thousand suns could not. So put a thousand stars like the sun here and this nebula would not look anything like it does right now. 
So it's really those very, very hot stars, and that's why the nebula doesn't live very long. Those hot stars don't live very long. Maybe a million, million, a couple million years, and then once they're gone, the source of energy for the nebula is gone, and we don't see anything. So the nebula would then disappear. And of course, out in some dark cloud, a mil- two million years from now, and more stars would have been forming, and we'd have a new nebula. Maybe something that looks a little bit more like a wizard. <laughs> or diff- differently named, so. But you can see I should do that one at a time. Give, give you the number. Okay, everybody write down what it is and see what we, com- see what we come up with. You know, I, bet, I, bet, I bet if I put that up there without the name there, we wouldn't get too many wizards out of it. So, maybe, huh? Maybe. Question. Yes, sir? No, I can see. Can you see it? Yeah, I believe that okay. it's actually like just the head and the whole thing is like facing to the left. Facing to the left. Okay, go ahead and show me. That's good. If someone else can see it. Here's a chin, okay, to the mouth, the lip. Nose, dark spot is the eyes. The whole thing's the head. Oh, that's what I mean. That's what okay. Uh, see, you got a good imagination. Okay. Can you see that? What I'm saying. I see what you mean. Yeah, the I can whole see. Thing is like the head facing the left. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was trying to think. That's why. That's why I was going with this little triangle here and saying, well, maybe this is a little pointed hat with the brim up here, and maybe that was. That's what I was looking at. But yours is as good as mine. <laughs> I can't. But I do see what you mean. How you can get a face that I see how you could get a face that way. Yeah, that's basically. Yeah, but how you how you know it's a wizard? You don't see the wizard either. No, no Harry Potter hiding in there. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, the astronomers don't call it the Wizard Nebula. That's you know the popular name. It's to the astronomers, it's NGC 7380. So the new general catalog. Of, the, of diffuse objects, and it's just the num- catalog numbers. That's what astronomers go by. But, you know, others like the more, it's easier to remember the Wizard Nebula than it is to remember that this is 7380 and 7381 is this galaxy and 7382 is some planet, you know, some uh, planetary nebula or something. So, all right, so questions. Questions, okay. All right, then we will get started. We are on to chapter 13. And I should, I, I have one more assignment I'm working on for you. I'm, try, I'm considering trying something this year on the exams. We've had three, we have one more exam to come. I know, yay. Sorry. But I'm thinking of getting an assignment that you can do. It's an optional assignment that can replace one exam grade. So I'll give you another assignment to do. That's, that's not a gimme assignment. It's not something you do when you get your, your exam goes from you know a zero to fifty. It's not going to do that. I mean, it will be something I'll grade. I will if we require, it will require some work, but it may you know if you've done well on all the exams, don't bother. Don't. It's not going to change you much. If you've had a couple of poor exam, it can make it can make a difference. So I'm working on something, and I will try to have you something by Friday, because I want you. To, I don't want to give it to you and say I need it next week. But you know we're coming to the point now where Thanksgiving's only a couple weeks away, and then the end of the semester. So I don't want to say you only have a week to do it. I want to give you you know a month, and say I need it. But I I don't want to get things you know have everybody decide to do it and get it at the end of the semester. <laughs> Be trying to grade all of these. So I am working on something there that you could use to replace like a single exam grade that may help may help you a little bit. So. So I did want to let you know that's that's, po- that's potential probably coming on Friday. I'll have, I've got a draft, but I want to kind of flesh it out a little bit more before I go. Okay. So. Yeah, we don't need that. Okay. So we're finishing up. So I kind of did our exam. Last semester I did our exam a week later. 
And I actually included this chapter too. This chapter really, it can go either way. It really belongs with stellar evolution that we've just talked about. But I kind of split it up just to keep the three exams there. So it's going to end up going here and then we're going to go into galaxies over the next couple chapters. But black holes especially come back when we talk about galaxies. So it, it can fit either way. But you're going to see a lot of relationship to what we've just finished talking about in terms of the evolution of stars. Because there are three things that a star can end up as. Four maybe, but really three if it actually ever became a star. And we talked in the last chapter about white dwarfs. That's what the sun's going to become. Well, the other two possibilities are neutron stars and black holes. White dwarfs are the boring ones. They're about the size of the Earth. Mass of the sun, size of the Earth. So they're really, they're really compact, really dense, really relatively strong gravity. But not that much out of our... They're, they're, you know, something that we can at least sort of comprehend. These start to get a little weird, or a lot weird when you get to black holes. Now, black holes, we know a little bit about, and we know some of their properties, but by their nature, you can't really know anything that goes on when you get inside a certain distance from a black hole. You're not, you cannot know anything about it. So they're very tricky objects. Now, what you're seeing, the picture here, is actually a supernova remnant. And it is, so it's an exploded, remnant of an exploded star. And that's where these two are going to come from. So a star like the sun pushes out its off, off, off the outer layers, not awful layers, outer layers. Maybe they are awful, I don't know. But the outer layers get pushed out into space. That becomes a planetary nebula, and those are those nice, smooth, symmetrical rings for the most part. This is where a star has actually torn itself apart. And you can see it just looks like the source of something a little bit more violent than just the outer layers expanding out into space. It looks like the remnant of an explosion. So what we're going to talk about, we're going to do neutron stars first. And neutron stars and pulsars, which are very much related. In fact, the first neutron stars that were discovered were pulsars. And that's how the first ones were actually determined. Neutron star binaries, you can actually get neutron stars orbiting neutron stars or neutron stars orbiting something else. You can get some interesting things that go on there and gamma ray bursts. Remember we talked about a nova, right? Nova was material from a star landing on the surface of a white dwarf and burning. Well, could you get the similar thing with a neutron star, right? But if you had a neutron star in a binary system, except that you have a much more compact and exotic object so you don't get visible light bursts, you can actually get gamma ray. So you get bursts of gamma rays, very high energy particles coming from these. And then black holes. It's a fun one. We can talk about black holes, Einstein's theories of relativity. No, we don't, we don't do the math for Einstein's theories of relativity. So you do not have to worry about any of the group theory and everything you got to do to actually try to go through and understand them or even just the math for his special relativity is a little more than we need to go through. But we'll talk about what they, we'll talk about the results are. So you don't have to do the calculations. I won't make you do any calculations, not even on a homework assignment this time. So you won't have to worry about that. And then we'll look at black holes. What is it, what would it be like to travel near a black hole? And what evidence do we have that a black hole exists? I mean, we can't, I told you, we can't, you can't see it. It's black. So we can't see the black hole, not going to see it against space. How do, we, how do we know that there are black holes? And there are. There's some that are similar to stars, the mass of a star, a couple stars. 
We know that there are some like that, and we know that there are some at the centers of galaxies that are the mass of millions of stars. But I'll tell you, tell you a little bit about how we know about how we know about those. So, chapter 13. All right. So, going back, we talked about supernovae. We're in the last chapter. That's why I said this kind of leads in from the next cha- last chapter. But after a type one supernova, type one carbon detonation had a white dwarf star right at its mass limit and it collected a little bit too much mass and the carbon fusion started among the whole star at once and tore it apart. There's nothing left. There's nothing left there in the center. It tore the whole thing apart, the whole star exploded off into space and there's nothing remaining. But after a type 2 supernova, you might have part of the core left over. In fact, very likely you will. But it gets extremely dense. How dense? We get, we said this, the white, white dwarf was the size of the Earth. A neutron star would be the size of a city on the Earth. Same mass as the Sun, or more massive than the Sun, but the size of a city, maybe 10 kilometers across, about 6 miles. It's as dense as the atomic nucleus. Now, if you remember when I told you white dwarfs, white dwarfs were being held up. You need something pushing against it to hold it up. And that was the electrons. We pushed all the atoms and pushed all the space in between the atoms out so that we, the electrons were pushing against each other. Electrons are negative, so they push all against each other and it keeps them, holds it steady. And something like the sun will stay there. The sun will never become a type 1 supernova because it's not going to have enough mass and there's nothing near it to give it mass. So it's going to stay there nice and happy. But if you do get enough mass, if you can crush that even more, you can crush out all the space within the atom. So you crush the electrons into the nucleus. If you combine an electron and a proton, you have a positive charge and a negative charge. Make a neutral charge. You essentially make a neutron. So what this is, it's essentially a gigantic atomic nucleus. It's a bunch of neutrons. So this would be just a whole bunch of neutrons, which is where it gets its name as neutron star. It's just as dense as the atomic nucleus. If you took the sun, got rid of all the empty space in it, down to the nuclear particles, pushing against each other, physically almost touching each other, you could take the entire sun and condense it down to a few kilometers across. And that's, again, that's what we call a neutron star, and that's where it gets its name. It's essentially a big ball of neutrons. Now here's the example for the size. Got New York there and what, the Manhattan Island and everything. There's about the size of the neutron star for comparison. They'd be about one solar mass minimally, probably can go up to about three. The upper limit is very, is not as well known because it's easier to tell exactly how big a white dwarf can get. We know more about the electron pressure. We don't know what it takes to crush those neutrons because now you have all those neutrons sitting against each other. So to compress them again, you've got to push those neutrons into each other. We don't understand that as well. So I don't know if it's two and a half solar masses, three solar masses, three and a half. They have a reasonable range. You know, we know it's not one or two. We know it's not, you know, you don't need just, you don't need to get to 20. But we don't know what the exact matter is. But again, incredibly small but extremely massive. So their gravity is extremely strong. You know, it, it, unlike the sun, the sun doesn't have, a solid surface, doesn't have a solid surface. You could land on a neutron star. You couldn't walk. You'd immediately be crushed by the strong gravity flat. 
the gravity would be so strong. But yes, you could technically land on it. Of course, it would be incredibly hot and there'd be other issues. But as a surface, there is a surface there. So you could technically land on it, but you'd never be able to walk on the surface of a neutron star. The gravity would be so intense at that level with that much material crushed into that small space that it would immediately crush you. And in fact, a neutron star is very, very close to being a black hole. only needs to crush a little bit more and it would actually be to the point where you couldn't, you couldn't get out of it at all. But here, I say again, compared to Manhattan, you can get an idea of how big a neutron star actually is. So they're incredibly tiny. And we said white dwarfs were hard to find, so that makes neutron stars even harder to find. Because even if that thing's very hot, you're looking for something the size of a city that is many, many light years away. It's a very hard thing to detect. What else does a neutron star have? Well, it rotates. And it rotates extremely fast. So, you know, the sun rotates once every month, every 25 days or 35 days, depending on where you are on the surface, it rotates around once. But if it, as it collapses down, and you've seen this, you know, you watch the ice skater, right? As they spin around, what happens when they pull their arms in? They speed up. Well, you're taking all this matter from way out here in the star, and you're condensing it way down here. That star is going to spin extremely fast, and typically are fractions of a second. So they might spin three or four times a second. So something 10 kilometers across, still pretty big, you know, we can, we can imagine it. It's not unimaginable like some of the sizes of the big stars, but it's spinning three, four times a second. So it is whipping around, whipping around. And it has to. Conservation of angular momentum says that it was spinning. Remember that big cloud that it formed from? It was spinning very slowly. It condensed down and the, now the star spins with like a period of a month or so. But if it condenses down even further, it's going to spin even faster. So another important property is so they're, moving, they're spinning very, very fast. And they have a very strong magnetic field. The magnetic field gets condensed too. So all those magnetic field lines that were spread out over the sun are now getting condensed down. And the magnetic field of the neutron star is extremely strong. The sun's magnetic field reasonably strong. It's got real strong points when you get it twisted up properly. But it's nothing compared to the magnetic field of a neutron star. These are extremely strong magnetic fields and extremely fast rotations. And we're going to see that. We're going to come back to that here in a minute and that's going to help us when we try to decipher what these pulsars, objects that we detected are. So pulsars. Come back to neutron stars in just a minute. First pulsar was discovered in 1967. So we've known about them for what? 44 years. 44 years now. So relatively recent in astronomy. I mean, 50 years ago there was no such thing as a pulsar. But it was discovered by looking. They were observing in the radio part of the spectrum. So it's radio observations. So a radio telescope was looking out in space and detected this signal. An extremely regular signal. You're getting a pulse and a pulse and a pulse and a pulse and a little bit of a glitch there. Pulse, pulse, pulse. You're getting a very regular pulse occurring about a little over a second. This one was a little bit over a second. It takes maybe one point, or the exact number, 1.2, 1.3 seconds to spin. 
and we're kind of minimizing what it was, some initial confusion as to what it was. Actually, they sort of jokingly named it as they were trying to figure out. This first one was actually named LGM-1, Little Green Men. Well, if you get this kind of signal for spa from space, this regular, what, should, what would be one of your first thoughts? Is it an intelligent signal? Why is, this, why is something sending you a pulse every 1.4 seconds? So it looks, yeah, is it a Martian? So that's, that's a jokingly named LGM-1. I don't think it was taken that serious. I think it was considered, but I don't think it was taken that seriously at the time. But that was sort of the initial confusion part that it was a, maybe it was a source of extraterrestrial intelligence. No, we're still looking. You know, 44 years later, we're still looking for a sign. But what was found that this could be is that it was a neutron star spinning very quickly. And if you remember, neutron stars, I said, can spin a couple times a second. This one's a little bit slower, maybe a little over a second. But it was a neutron star sending these pulses. And that was part of the confusion is that we didn't, it wasn't really known of many objects that were that small. A white dwarf couldn't spin this fast. A star couldn't spin this fast. If you tried to spin a star like the sun or even something like the earth, once a second, what would happen? Tear the whole thing apart. It'd be spinning so fast the whole thing would be torn apart just by that rotation if you tried to spin it that fast. It takes something extremely small and extremely dense to be able to spin. A white dwarf wouldn't be able to spin this fast. You'd tear a white dwarf apart if it was trying to spin once a second. But then the next question is, why does it flash on and off? And it's what they call the lighthouse effect. So this is a picture of the drawing of the neutron star. So you have a neutron star here. You have an extremely strong magnetic field. So this is the magnetic field lines. And remember how those trap the particles. So the particles can only escape from the neutron star along the magnetic poles. So they can only come out this way or they can come out that way and that's it. If this is spinning, okay, so imagine this spinning around, this beam will go through space, sort of like a lighthouse. It'll go around and point to different areas. So it's pointing here, it'll point back in, it'll point over this way and it'll come around. It'll come around in a cone and it'll point to those specific areas. If you happen to lie in the path of one of those, you know, if we're sitting over here, we're sitting off over someplace else where it's not passing, straight up overhead, straight over its rotation axis, we'll never see it. It'll never pulse. It is, it's pulsing, it's sending pulses out into space, but we'll never be able to find them. So what we have is that if that beam happens to pass, if we're out here, every time this spins, once every second, we're going to get a burst of intensity from this pole of the neutron star. So every time it comes by, every second comes around again, another burst, another burst, and that's what we're seeing on the previous path. And if you could look at this visibly, and some of these will emit enough visible light, if they're energetic enough, they'll emit visible light, they'll actually blink on and off. Not just in the radio, which is where they were discovered, but even in visible light. And you can look at this in something like, we looked at a picture of the Crab Nebula, right? Looks like a crab. No, it doesn't, but leave that aside, it's, it actually has a pulsar at the center. We can detect the pulsar, but we can actually see it flash on and off in visible light. 
So depending on how you take the picture, it can be on, it can be off. It just depends on whether you're taking that picture at this instant as, it's, as the beam is coming, or if you're taking it while the beam is way off over on the other side. That one actually pulses in the visible because it is a relatively young. It's only about a thousand years old. You know, getting down to time frames we can actually comprehend. Now, only a thousand years old isn't so bad. Okay. But they're spinning fast and they do radiate away their energy. So they will slow down. Slow down, they'll slow down their spin, so they might be spinning four times a second when they form, and then they'll slow down to three times, and two, and one second, and then two. They're slowing down, and eventually, as it, as it slows down and it weakens, then the energy's gone. We don't detect it, we won't detect the pulsar, and then we'll, we'll have a real hard time trying to detect that neutron star. We will have a very hard time trying to detect it because it is so tiny, and if it's not sending out these bursts of radiation that we can detect, it's, all, it's essentially invisible. Again, a few, ten million year, a few tens of millions of years. So they'll last a longer time than some of the stars in the sky. Some of the young stars won't last ten million years. But they don't last very long compared to something like the sun. They're still there. The neutron star doesn't go anyplace. It's still sitting there. It's not going to go. It's going to keep spinning. Probably be slow, it'll be slowing down and it won't have as much energy, but it's still there. It just makes it extremely hard to detect. So unless that beam happens to pass us, if that jet, that beam does not pass us, we'll never be able to see the neutron star. So the pulsars are only sort of a select group of neutron stars. They're the ones that happen to beam things towards us. So if we happen to see them beaming towards us, that's what we see as a pulsar. The new other neutron stars can actually be there, but would never be detected. Okay. Question? Question? No? Okay. So here's the Crab Nebula one I mentioned. So there's the Crab Nebula. You see the little crab with his... What? No? Okay, I'll try. Pretty picture though. But again, it look, it, like I said with the other one, it looks like something exploded. Looks like something spewed a lot of stuff out into space. It doesn't look like that was a nice gentle evaporating of the layers out into space. But here, if we zoom in onto where this pulsar is, star, 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 right? One, two, three, see the same pattern? And there, there it is, and there it isn't. It's on and it's off. Picture the same part of the same part of the central portion of this nebula, so you're kind of zooming in from this very core here where the pulsar is located. Zooming in here, zooming in again, there's the pulsar. But if you take the picture at the right instant, you can see it. And if you take that picture at a different instant, you know, where is it? Is there something very faint right there? Nothing you'd ever be able to detect without those pulses. If it's not pul pulsing, it's actually relatively bright. Not compared to the whole nebula, but you can actually see it. But that is invisible light. This is not radio or anything. This is actually visibly. So you could actually see this. Take pictures through a telescope. You could actually, through a good enough, big enough telescope, you'd actually be able to measure that. You could actually see it go on and off. Now, if it's spinning that fast, you wouldn't really actually, you'd never see it yourself. You'd have to be able to take those snapshots of it. Your eye takes pictures over a longer period of time. 
So it would sort of blur it all together and it would just look like it would be on all the time because you'd see the brightness there. It would never fade off. But if you can take images of it, you'd actually be able to see that. And here's another pulsar. The very high energy pulsars actually pulsate in gamma rays. So you actually have, in this case, you have two pulsars together, relatively close. There's the Crab Nebula one. There's one out in the same general direction pulsating in gamma rays. And over on the top, you can sort of see how that's pulsed. You can see this one here. Especially how strong that one is. It gets really, the top upper one gets very, very strong in gamma rays, weaks out, gets weaker and fades out, and then gets stronger again. That's a very, very young pulsar. You're going to see it in gamma rays first, would be the biggest pulsation. That would be when it initially formed. You'd see strong pulses in gamma rays. As it loses energy, you'd work your way down the spectrum. So you'd go from gamma rays to X rays, ultraviolet, visible. Crab Nebula still pulses very well invisible. It's still relatively young. But then it'll slowly fade out to the point where you wouldn't be able to see it visibly and you'd only see it in radio waves for most of its, for most of its life. So these are two examples of two more pulsars we can see here. Now I said isolated neutron stars are hard to find. Here's a relatively young, here's one about a million years old that has been detected by Hubble. So this star was actually measured here in October of 96 and then a couple times in 99. And it's moving very, very quickly. So we know it's relatively close. But it's extremely faint. Most of these other dots here you're looking at are background noise just from the detector. So you're not seeing lots of stars here. There's a few. You can see some brighter things. But most of these just lighter things are just background noise in the detector. So this is extremely faint. But when you measure its temperature, 700,000 degrees. Very, very hot. It's about a million year old neutron star. It's not a pulsar. So after a million years, we're either not detecting it as a pulsar or it's pulsing out in other directions so that some other astronomers in some other, in some other part of the galaxy are detecting it as a pulsar, but we're not. If those beams don't pass by us, we're not going to see it. But this is actually an example of something I said is very, very hard to find. There could be many millions of these out there. If the beams aren't pointing towards us, and as they slow down over and lose their energy over tens of millions of years, remember that's a very short time. For, that's many, many solar lifetimes. That doesn't take very long to slow, to, to have a lot of them around. So there could be a lot, like the, a lot like this around. Unlike the white dwarf, black dwarf. Remember the white dwarf, they're cool to a black dwarf, but it hasn't happened yet. It takes longer than the history of the universe for them to do it. These don't. These can cool down over tens of millions of years. The sun's five billion years old and the universe is about 13, so there could be a lot of them that formed and there could be a lot of these out there traveling through space. It would just be a matter of coincidence to happen to get happen to detect one. And that's what was happened here. But again, about 700,000 degrees. So not as hot as the center of the sun. The sun is 15 million degrees. But a big chunk of it for the surface of this, of this neutron star. Pulsar. OK. <coughs> Excuse me.
All right, binary stars. So X-ray sort of like an X-ray burst. And we've seen some of these near the center of the galaxy. And here's a picture before and after. So same part of the sky. There's this in X-rays. So we're seeing how many X-rays were coming from this part of the sky here. And all of a sudden, you had a big burst come from this area. And that is likely to be related to a neutron star. So we think that is related to a neutron star. And again, as I mentioned, the process can be very similar to what we had in a nova. A nova explosion was material being collected on the surface of a white dwarf and then igniting. Well, a neutron star is hotter, denser, so it's going to have stronger gravity. It's going to pull, it would pull material as well onto its surface and it could ignite just as well. So it could actually give off a lot of x-rays in that because it's of the density and how quick the explosion would occur when it's on the surface of a, new, of a white dwarf, we'd probably see it invisible, but when it's on the surface of this neutron star, which has a lot stronger gravity, it's actually going to emit a lot more energy and a lot more higher energy, so you're going to see it in x-rays. So we're getting a burst here in x-rays towards the center of our galaxy. Now we say towards the center of our galaxy because that's where a lot of the older stars are. So a lot of the older stars that form, the young stars are forming further out in our galaxy, Again, a little more, this is the subject of our next chapter. But the uh, newer stars form further out in the outer structure of the galaxy, and the old stars form towards the middle. That's where they first started forming. So a lot of old stars, a lot of pulsars would be there, a lot of uh, neutron stars just in general. And again, we wouldn't detect them all. But if it happens to be in a binary system, even if it's far away and we can't see it directly, there could be another star orbiting that is actually giving it some material, causing it to ignite and give off these x-rays. So this is just the explanation. We'll go through it once again. The x-ray bursts, our current thought on them is that it's a neutron star in a binary system. So you have a star and you have a neutron star. And the neutron star has a very strong gravity, so if this is a star that used to be a main sequence star and has now become a giant, it got bigger, it might be closer to that, it starts to pull material towards it, collects it in a disk, and what we call an accretion disk, which is just a disk of material around that neutron star, and some of it will start to settle on the surface. When you build up enough of it, when you build up enough, same thing that happened on that white dwarf star. It's eventually going to start to burn because all this is, all that's coming here primarily is hydrogen. And that's a regular main sequence star. Its surface is 90% hydrogen. So essentially this hydrogen is coming into a disk here, settling, some of it settles towards the surface of the star. Eventually if you get enough of it there, it will give off a burst of x-rays. So the white dwarf gave off the visible light. This one will give off x-rays because we have a much stronger gravitational field. Gravity is much, much stronger because you've condensed all that mass down, even, down to a very small point. 
You've condensed all of that mass into a very, very little point almost, 10 kilometers. Taken the sun, condensed it down to 10 kilometers across. And because of that extremely strong gravitational field, we actually get x-rays instead of visible light. You'd actually get a much higher energy nova explosion in, in this case. Now, most pulsars, the first one that was discovered was actually one of the longer ones. That one I saw was like one point something seconds. But most of them spin three to 30 times a second, roughly. 0 0.03 to 0.3 seconds, how long they take to spin around once. 30 times a second. It's hard to imagine. 10 kilometers across, whipping around 30. You're standing on, you'd be quite dizzy, huh? If you were standing on the surface of that thing. I know you'd be crushed too, but you know. That aside, it's fact of the fact that you'd be crushed to you know, a flat layer on the surface of it, you'd be quite dizzy. But there's another object that was discovered about more like 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, it was called the millisecond pulsar. So these things were rotating not just 30 times a second, but hundreds to close to 1,000 times a second. So they were spinning extremely fast. I mean, we, they're already spinning extremely fast. They're, sp they're spinning beyond extremely fast. They're getting up to the border of where, how fast they could possibly spin before they would even tear themselves apart. And what is believed to be happening is that you know, they shouldn't spin any faster. Normally a pulsar would start out spinning as fast as it's going to. It collapsed and it's spinning real fast and then it's slowly going to slow down over time. Over millions and billions of years it would slow down. These ones are actually getting sped up. So they're spinning faster than they were before. And we think that's because of material dropping into them. So as some of this material is dropping in, if it's striking, as it spirals in, if it's striking like parallel to the surface, it gives it a little bit of a kick each time. So it just gives that little push. You know, little kid on a swing, swinging, keeps pumping while you're pumping up the neutron star and getting it spinning faster and faster and faster. And these things can spin, you know, hundreds of times a second. And again, it's hard to imagine anything that big spinning that fast. I can't imagine spinning a hundred, I can't imagine spinning myself a hundred times a second. That would be. I'd be long since dizzy before that. But as that matter hits the neutron star, it kind of gives that little bit of a kick each time and causes it to speed up a little bit more. Now eventually if that source of infalling matter goes away, this, it would slow down. But again, you have these things spinning extremely fast. Now a millisecond pulsar never would have been discovered by that first observation. You never would have seen it. It would be going too fast, you wouldn't have noticed it in the data. That's why one of the ones that happened to be discovered first was one of the longest, longest data. In fact, I'm going to go back there for one second, see if I can, this one? Where was it? I think I went to, let me go back to that picture for a second. Oh, there it is. So you can imagine if you had something with it was going so fast in here, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even notice it. It would look like just a steady, almost a steady intensity to within the noise. So if you had something spinning several hundred times a second, even something spinning five or six times a second would be very hard to get at the resolution and the detail they had at the time back in 1967. So it would have been hard. It's kind of fortunate that the first one that they discovered happened to hit was one that was a longer period and easier to measure in their data. 
so you could actually see that. But you can imagine if you were trying to put a thousand little oscillations in here, with how wide they are, everything would just get smeared out and you'd never probably recognize it as a pulsar. Okay, now go back. It'd be easier to go this way. So millisecond pulsars. And what we think is happening, again, it's the matter falling in. So as this matter falls in, if it's falling in in the right way, it can actually cause that, give that, give that neutron star a kick every single time and cause it to spin a little bit faster and speeds it up. This is an example of a globular cluster. We did a globular cluster, what, a couple weeks ago, right? We looked at a globular cluster, we made an HR diagram of it, and we found out that it's a very old cluster. The youngest stars still on the main sequence were stars like the Sun in many globular clusters or even further down the main sequence. So we didn't, so these have very, very old stars. When we zoom in and look at the core, and we've switched, this is visible light, that's what it looks like out in space. When we zoom in here, we're switching. So this is going from visible light to x-rays. So all these different x-ray sources, 108 of them in this case, many of these might be those extremely fast spinning pulsars. And again, they're spinning much faster. They still have, all the, they're gaining energy. They're going to emit a lot of x-rays and gamma rays. They're going to emit a lot of higher energy radiation than the ones that are slowing down. So when these neutron stars happen to form in a binary system, they sort of tend to last. Now it's interesting that you can get a neutron star in a binary, you would wonder whether you could form a neutron star in a binary system because what, how did the neutron star form? form? Supernova explosion, right? So that means the supernova explosion is pretty bad, but if that star was far, the companion star was far enough away, it actually survived the supernova explosion. So even that explosion, that's tremendous explosion. We've seen some of the remnants, but you can actually mean that because we can see neutron stars in a binary system, and we see lots of them, that, that there has to be a possibility, a very good possibility, that that supernova explosion doesn't destroy the other star, which wasn't involved in this. The one star just happened to get big and blew up. But it was enough that it didn't actually tear that, tear that star apart. Now you'd wonder if you were close enough, in this case, if you were close enough to it, if it would do. It would do significant damage if you had two stars very close together. So maybe it's ones that were further apart and then later expanded. This star became a red giant or a red supergiant and then its material was close enough to actually trans transfer. Okay. Gamma ray bursts. So now we're going, we had x-ray bursts, we had x-ray bursts from this, now we've got gamma ray bursts. We need something even higher energy than this. And we haven't hit black holes, we haven't gotten to black holes yet. Black holes come up next time. But gamma ray bursts, well first they were found by looking for, looking for violations of like the test ban treaties, looking for gamma ray bursts from nuclear explosions on the earth. But interestingly enough when you look at them, and this is a map, of the entire sky, they occur everywhere. So no matter where you look in the sky, you're just as likely to see a gamma ray burst. You know, if we look at the sky in visible light, there's a concentration of the Milky Way galaxy. You can see where there's more light in the Milky Way if we take a picture of it in visible light, if we take the whole sky. 
If we take the whole sky in infrared or radio, you still see a concentration at the Milky Way and you see other clumps where there's things. When we look at gamma rays, you know, there's really, there's some emptier areas and some clumpier, but no, there's no coherent structure to it. So what this means is that these things must occur from beyond our galaxy. If they were within our galaxy, then they would be concentrated around here, around the plane around where the disk of our galaxy. Our galaxy is very flat and if they occurred in our galaxy they'd be in that disk like the visible light, like the infrared light, like the radio light that we see in the universe. But when we look at the gamma ray bursts they occur everywhere. They're just as likely to occur completely opposite the plane of the galaxy as they are to occur in it. So they don't really clump, they don't clump and they're from beyond, something from beyond our galaxy. So what might they be? We need something higher energy. Remember this was giving, this was the neutron star was giving us x-rays. We need something to give us gamma rays, which is an even higher energy. And these are some examples of just what you see. Now if you remember when we talked about telescopes, gamma rays you can't focus. You can't take a picture in gamma rays, but we can count. So these are, you know, how many gamma rays were counted by the telescope per second. So you went from a background level, because we get some just coming from space in general, and you get that constant level, that level here, then you had a little burst, and then you had this spike where it went up to what? Almost 40,000 from about 5,000, went up about eight times. That's a pretty significant increase. That's a real, you got really bright in gamma rays all of a sudden. All of a sudden you had this very massive spike of gamma rays occurring. Here you had it stretched over a longer period of time and back here again, four to eight times the increase. This is a little milder one. This one was only, what, six to twelve, maybe two to three times bigger. But it's a big clump. All of a sudden you're getting this big burst of gamma rays in space for some reason. Some of them, the first one that was actually able to measure a distance was two billion parsecs away. Two billion parsecs would be pushing six and a half, six, six and a half to seven billion light years. That's about half the size of the universe. So that's half, the, half a universe away. So very occasionally we can get distances and actually be able to determine distances and they're very far away. But, let's see if it's the last one. Here's the things that we think might be happening for it, and I'll finish up with this here probably. We won't get on, we'll get on to black holes on Friday. But these are the two things that we think might be happening. One thing you might happen is that two neutron stars are forming together. And if they're in a very tight orbit, they, that orbit can slowly decay and they can merge together and during that merger as these two neutron stars collide, so you've got a lot of gravity and a lot of gravity and you're colliding them together, all of a sudden you can get, you could get a big burst. No supernova, that's the second one. But that's one example of what we think may cause these. So they could occur at any time in the universe, any time after neutron stars had formed. They'd be able to, they'd be able to, two neutron stars happen to collapse together, form in a system, 
and coll collapse together and form a lot of extremely high temperatures because you have two objects spinning extremely quick, extremely high gravity that are coalescing together. The other thing we use is similar to a supernova but it's called a hypernova. So what we think this does, and here's our introduction to black holes that we'll come back to next time, is that the star collapses. And I told you the star collapses and then rebounds. Well, in some of the models that are done, since we can't go and we can't go pick out a star and explode it for ourselves and see what's going to happen, sometimes that supernova stops because you're trying to push this material back out through all those layers of atmosphere. And sometimes it just stalls. So you know you're trying to push out all these layers and if you didn't have enough energy it stops. Forming a black hole at the center, which all of a sudden that black hole with its gravity forms a disk and re-expands the supernova. So a supernova sort of occurs in stages and would be much more intense than a normal supernova, hence the name hyper. Hypernova. So I'm going to come back, since I'm about out of time here, I'm going to go ahead and stop and come back and I'll summarize the gamma ray bursts again because I kind of rushed through this last slide. I want to take a little more time and go through this in a little more detail on Friday and then we'll get on to the black holes next time which I think is our, oops, nope, we still got one more slide there. So we'll finish up the gamma ray bursts on Friday before lab. So questions, questions? Yes? Sure, right before this one? Yep. There you go. Other questions? Alrighty. Have a good one.